0: how an unauthenticated API got Australia's second-largest telco company into trouble, and how private equity firms have their eyes on take-private deals. These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. Optus, Australia's second-largest telecommunications company, had a massive knock to its reputation this week, As it was revealed, they experienced one of the largest data breaches ever in the country. Executive editor Jeremy Kirk has been living and breathing the story for the past few days. Here he is sharing with me what exactly went wrong. Great to see you, Jeremy. So, Jeremy, you've been tracking the Optus story very closely right from the start. Could you share a quick overview of what we know so far, including the intriguing twist to the story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it involves a company called Optus, which is um, Australia's second largest telecommunications company. And so they came out and announced a data breach. And then uh, days later, uh, they announced it was a pretty severe data breach. It was probably upwards of 10 million records. And then days later, there was somebody on a data breach forum who said that they had the data and that they would uh, sell it to other cyber criminals unless Optus paid $1 million US in Monero, which is a type of cryptocurrency. And so at that time, this person also released two samples of the data as well. So our question was at that time, well, is this really the person that took this data? So, I mean, I had a look at the data and and basically found that yes, it, it was indeed legitimate. And then uh days later the hacker turned up the pressure and dumped more records online that looked legitimate uh and then said I'll release more records unless the ransom is paid I'll release 10,000 records a day unless the ransom is paid and then after making that threat just hours later completely withdrew it apologized and kind of indicated in sort of rough English that it was too high pressure of a situation. There was too many people watching this and just withdrew the extortion attempt. So obviously there's still a lot of issues around the fact of like, well, can we trust this person to delete it? And it really hasn't changed the calculus for Optus, which is still facing the repercussions of an absolutely massive data breach. And I think even aside from all of that bizarre stuff around the extortion attempt, This breach in particular has really brought to just the general public's consciousness, you know, the realities around the security of personal data.
0: And you've written a really detailed Twitter thread of what actually went wrong technically. Explain to us how 10 million customer records were actually stolen in
1: the first place. This was kind of tough because Optus wasn't saying much. An ABC story, which is the national broadcaster here that quoted a senior Optus executive as saying that this was an unauthenticated API, right? So this was an API that was left open to the internet that you didn't have to log into that was connected to Optus's entire customer database Optus kind of refuted that story. And once I started writing about it, like somebody reached out to me, somebody who's in Australia, who's connected with somebody else who's really close to the situation and said, yeah, it was, that's exactly what happened. And here's the URL for the API. And I thought, well, this is terrific, but also, you know, this source is anonymous. So I thought, well, I'll just ask Optus Data, and that's the nickname of the, um, the person who took this data and say, how did you get in? and this person gave me the same URL as the other separate source. So now there were kind of like three sources now to say that it was unauthenticated API. And of course, Optus didn't contest uh, my story or refute my story or anything like that. So they've yet to, you know, they're still doing instant response. You know, this is still really early in all of this, but I think we have a pretty clear idea as to how it happened.
0: So the grave mistake, of course, being that the API was connected to its customer database.
1: Yeah. So I also asked the person, well, once you found it, what did you do next? And this person said, I enumerated the records by customer ID. So customer ID was this little data field, and apparently these records are put into Optus' database in kind of a sequential manner. So uh, this person just pulled them out, exfiltrated them numerically, running through just uh, a set of numbers. So that was also kind of converging as well as, as being, you know, that's the reason with other people said, yeah, that seems, you know, really, really plausible.
0: I want to take a look at the actual data that was exposed you've got extensive personal information such as a driver's license medicare numbers and passport numbers is it normal for telecoms companies to keep all that sort of data on file
1: yeah well they definitely ask for that data because oftentimes you're getting a phone kind of on um uh, you know, postpaid. So they're billing you for it and they want to ensure that you're a good credit risk. So that information is probably used against, you know, sort of credit databases. But there's also probably a good question is like, well, why do you have to hold on to all this data this long? Optus has kind of blamed data retention laws on the books in Australia. It's still not even clear what that law sort of is. Telcos are required to retain certain amounts of information. But to give an example of like, why this is so shocking is like, when I look looked at that data on Saturday morning, this was one of the initial batches of data that was done. I recognized an address that was close to my house. I printed out this woman's data, went to her house, walked up the driveway. She was actually out in the driveway working in her yard. And I said, is this your data? And she said, yeah, that's my data. She compared it. And then I asked her, are you an Optus subscriber? She's like, no. I'm like, oh, okay. She's like, but I was until 2018, right? So here's a former customer who hadn't even been a subscriber of Optus for four years. And her data is still sitting in this live customer database. So all the principles around information security are right, are don't hold on to data that you're not using for any longer than you need to. This has prompted, you know, the government to look at like, well, what are the requirements for telcos? Maybe we need to change these requirements if that's what Optus is saying is the reason for this. But I can't see any reason why you'd need to hold on to data that was four years old.
0: So as you say, this has caused a huge storm in Australia, it's been dubbed Australia's Equifax breach. It's so interesting to see the responses from the government versus Optus. What do you make of the clash?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The government is absolutely furious about this because 10 million people are furious about this, right? You have to think like Australia's population is uh, between 25 to 30 million. So you've got 10 million customer records that are out there, 3 million of which have driver's license number or passport number or Medicare number. And um, Medicare is Australia's national healthcare system. So there's a number that's affiliated with that. So some people have that affected too. So the question right now is like, people are worried, what do we do? How could criminals use this? And what do I need to do? And you know, for some people probably change changing some of that data is probably good Uh, but changing passports is expensive changing driver's license is a hassle so several states in Australia are saying like look we'll replace your driver's license for free but they want Optus to pay for it and the federal government also is pressing Optus to reimburse the costs of people who have to get a reissued passport because of this breach. So that's quite serious right like if that comes to pass i mean this is still like really under discussion it's a really intensive situation right now but if that comes to pass i mean that's that's certainly an interesting development in the data breach world of, of holding the entity responsible for you know rather than people paying have to bear that cost having a company that's responsible for that bear that cost
0: well in all of this very thorough reporting jeremy what questions for you remain?
1: Oh, look, I mean, I think one question is like, are they going to get this person (laughs) who did this? So law enforcement here is really focused on trying to get this person. You know, some people have said, oh, should we call this person a hacker, right? And most you know, people in the security field say, oh, no, this was really easy. And that's very true. I mean, I think for the general public, this person is a hacker, you know, so to speak. But this person has perpetrated extortion. I mean, it's caused a lot of alarm. So it's, very serious offenses. Um, like I said, the AFP and the AF- FBI are now working together to try to find this person. I mean, I know security researchers that I've spoken to over the last few days are also very focused on this case. I mean, I think after you know what happened with Uber with the uh, Lapsus Group, uh, which just has done some you know, quite interesting sort of attacks that have really caused alarm for corporate security. And just the background of the whole ransomware issue right now is that governments are really fed up (laughs) with this, you know, because it's kind of hitting a really high level now. It's causing a lot of harm. It's gonna cost a lot of money too. So I think governments in Australia has been very aggressive about this. They said they were gonna offensively go after ransomware gangs too, similar to kind of what the US has, has said as well. So I think there's just less tolerance for this kind of stuff anymore you know, as it affects people, which is, you know, understandable, I think. Sure.
0: So as ever, what can organizations take away from this, particularly when it comes to securing APIs?
1: Yeah, so I had a good chat with some people um, about APIs and what, um, You know, what the situation is here with this particular, like, we don't exactly know what they made the mistake, but we know that, you know, broadly APIs are often exposed to the internet by accident and other people find them. Right. So that's, that's one thing. There's also just configuration issues. Like it looked like this particular API might've gone live on the internet as far back as June. And then it also looked like it was recently configured to use Akamai which is a sign that they were trying to hook this API up to a web application firewall to protect it. So I spoke with some people who are really good in kind of API security. And they usually say like in the development stage, when you're they're kind of testing the functionality of an API, often they put security on last. Because they want to make sure that the functionality of it actually works correctly. Because if you put the security on too soon, if there's a problem, you don't know if it's like the security controls or if it's just like something just in development that needs to be fixed. But when you don't have the security on that, right, it should be in like a test environment. You should just be using like dummy customer data, not live data. So there's questions of like maybe something happened in that transfer when that API, when Akamai was put in front of it, or maybe it was just kind of open for three months. Like we really don't know. It's like, we can tell little things from the outside and this information comes because there's DNS records that show that the API changed and something happened. I stress that we don't actually know that this has happened, but we know that this is a broad uh, security concern. It's like misconfigurations and also um, hinky things go on. These are complicated systems.
0: Well, I'm sure more details will be revealed. But as ever, superb investigative work, Jeremy. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news.
0: Tom Kellerman is the newly appointed Senior Vice President of Cyber Strategy with Contrast Security. In an interview with our Senior Vice President of Editorial, Tom Field, he discussed what concerns him the most about the state of code security today on the cusp of quarter four.
3: You know, frankly, scanning is ineffective. Um, There is insufficient context, insufficient ground truth. You know, application security must be continuous. It needs to be running from inside the application itself, which allows you to see vulnerabilities without guessing, right? You you need to be able to see vulnerabilities in development and directly measure them against attacks in production. And you must frankly treat every vulnerability as a potential attack. And also the velocity of change, right? Requires that you discover zero days in libraries and frameworks as well. You need to really kind of conduct continuous monitoring across those environments. And, And I think also we should, we would be remiss to forget that we need to employ intelligent runtime protection. It's an imperative to eliminate entire classes of attacks uh, so that your developers can really focus on what's important and, and be shielded from a classes of attacks as described by OWASP for years that are still viable.
0: And finally, Vista Equity Partners has joined Toma Bravo in the take private cybersecurity spree, offering to buy a security awareness training company No Before. I caught up with our business editor, Michael Novenson, to find out more. Great to see you, Michael. You have written this week that Vista Equity Partners has put in an offer to buy security awareness training firm Before at a $4.22 billion valuation. So no small price there. Could you tell us more about this bid?
2: Absolutely. And thank you for having me on, Anna. So we've seen this push toward take private deals really starting back in last fall when we saw the stock market peak and then really accelerating this year as the economic downturn continues and private equity firms feel like they can get companies at a discount. So we've seen SailPoint, we've seen Tufin, uh, we've seen Proofpoint, uh, we're seeing Ping Identity go private, there are talks around Darktrace going private. And then the latest coming out recently is this unsolicited non-binding offer made by Vista Equity Partners to acquire Nova Before for $4.22 billion. NoBefore is the leader in the security awareness training market, one of the few standalone players. They won private just last year, so they've only been private for a shade over 15 months now but they are the largest company that focuses just on security awareness training with about 1500 employees. It's a good growing business. They have revenue growth in the mid 30s. They're actually profitable on a gap basis, which is very rare in the security industry. So I think it's an opportunity for large private equity firm like Vista to take a position in or to own a clear category leader, a clear market leader at a pretty reasonable price. So for that reason, I can certainly understand why it would be appealing.
0: So know before, security awareness training company, why the buzz about them?
2: Interesting question. So we've seen a lot of consolidation in the security awareness training market. Now, if we think about security as being a combination of people, process, and technology, security awareness training really gets at the people portion of the equation. So in recent years, we've seen a lot of vendors looking to pair their technology, particularly in the email security space, with trying to address the people issue through security awareness training capabilities. So specifically, if you go back to 2018, we saw Barracuda, ProofPoint, and Mindcast make acquisitions to security awareness training vendors. Barracuda brought Fishline, Proofpoint bought Wombat, and then Mindcast bought Atada so that they can try to address the phishing issue technologically as well as to try to teach people what suspicious links or suspicious attachments look like. More recently, we saw Huntress Buy Curricula, which is a smaller security awareness training provider for $22 million to pair with their. Threat intelligence and their MDR technology. If you look at the security awareness training landscape today, there are very, very few standalone players left. NoBefore is by far and away the biggest, at roughly fifteen hundred employees, and is public. After that, you'd have to take a pretty big step down to CoFence, which used to be FishMe, was taken private a couple of years ago, but there are a couple hundred employees, a significantly smaller endeavor than what NoBefore is doing. So if you're a private equity firm and you want to stake a claim in the security awareness training market, there's very few options today. And no 4 is certainly the biggest way to get presence in that room.
0: So wider picture here. This reflects how private equity firms, other than Tom Bravo, are now pursuing take private deals. What other movements are you tracking and are we likely to see more of this trend occur?
2: Uh, certainly something I'm keeping an eye on. So Toma Bravo historically has been very active in this take private space recently with the deals to buy SailPoint, to buy Ping Identity, the discussions with Darktrace, though no deal was consummated. They acquired ProofPoint in a take private last year. And then even if you go back a couple of years, Barracuda, Sophos and Pervo were all take private deals as well. So it's a very common motion for how Toma Bravo takes a stake in the company. Outside of them, it's something we haven't seen a ton from many other private equity vendors. We did have Turn River Capital take Tufin private, but that's a Tufin significantly smaller than a lot of the companies we're talking about. So it's always been perplexing to me. And Toma Bravo is pretty intelligent to know how to make money. If they're doing this, why don't we see other folks doing this as well? So it is interesting to see Vista come to the table here and try to do this. There are stakes in a few other security companies, Uh, some startups like Menlo Security that they've invested in. They did buy Venify outright, but they were pre-public. So we haven't seen them do a take private before. But I do have to wonder, especially with this market downturn, if others are going to start to see value, the KKRs and the insights of this world as well and want to get in on Toma Bravo's party.
0: Well, interesting times indeed. As always, thank you so much, Michael, for this information.
2: You're very welcome. Thanks for the time, Anna.
0: That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time.